How was your weekend, Sean? How's it been going? Going all right. I uh, managed to get a little bit of rest, but I've been pretty busy all weekend. We went and saw um, Priscilla on Friday night, the Sofia Coppola movie. Oh, yeah. How's that? It was good. It was good. It was, I think, very much worth seeing. Rax is going to write, got uh, commissioned to write an article about it, so... I'm going to withhold my judgment until she tells me what to think about it, but I enjoyed it. <laughs> yeah, I haven't, um, I've never been a big fan of Sofia Coppola. Me neither. But if you, if you say it's worth seeing, I'll, I'll check it out. It would, it's interesting because like Sofia Coppola, the things that she chooses to focus on where they're directing, like these various like long sort of like gauzy scenes of like, um, putting rollers into hair or something like that is it's actually like a really interesting statement on what gets focused on in movies. Typically it's like a very like er sort of like feminine, like uh, what you would call it uh, filmography, I guess, or like f- cinematography, right? Which I think she does on purpose because this whole, the whole idea of the movie is to invert the Elvis story and take it away from Elvis and show the way that he. Treated. Oh, it's about Priscilla Presley. Yeah. Oh, yeah okay. Yeah. Well, I'll definitely see it then because I'm a big Elvis head since I saw Elvis last year. Well, yeah, this one doesn't actually make Elvis look that great, as you can imagine. Well, you know but what? We need it. The Baz Luhrmann. The, the Baz, Baz Luhrmann, Luhrmann was, was a hagiography. Yeah. And we all know that's not. Hagiographies are never accurate. So. Right. Maybe those two can show together from now on. We have, you have, yeah, there should be like a, a viewing that's both of them, the Baz Luhrmann and the Priscilla, and then you get both sides of the dialectic. Just like today, we're going to have uh, Sakai side by side with uh, Du Bois and Adam Clayton Powell and A. Philip Randolph. You know, we'll see both yeah. sides of that. Do not forget Marcus Garvey. Well, I mean, Garvey big... is on the Sakai side. He is. Interestingly, I think that this is, as we get into chapter nine, neo-colonial pacification in the U.S., um, I think now we're starting to have more evidence for not only Sakai's historical conceptions, but really like building, putting the meat on the skeleton of this this nation that he's talking about. Because by the time we get to the 19 teens and 20s and 1930s, you do start to see like an African, new African nationalism that arises, uh, you know, with Garveyism, importantly, but also, of course, too, with um, A. Philip Randolph uh, being like the sort of er integration socialist figure. And the way that Sakai uh, is able to play those two off against each other, I think is very interesting historically. And now we can talk about national, black nationalism in the country and actually have it be a real existing, living, breathing historical entity instead of something that Sakai is trying to like thrust backwards into time mm-hmm. to take events of like the 19th century. When it's I think he still different. does that, though. I think there's still a bit of like, um, I don't know, mystical or, you know, he talks the same way about black nationalism that leftists like us might often talk about like enthusiasm for socialism or anti-capitalism among the working class is like, yeah, it's not visible, but it's there. Like it's seeds beneath the snow as Sakai says. Um, But certainly when we start with Garvey, we're talking about uh, one of the first mass political movements 
of African Americans and black people everywhere in the world. Um, I guess probably the first international black movement. Yeah, uh, that represented yeah. millions of people. Yeah, I think that you're exactly right to point to the way that Sakai understands Garveyism as, like you said, the the way that we see sort of like incipient communism within, say, more like economistic movements or um, like the the uh, the desire to overcome capitalism through various insurrections and riots or whatever. He actually says quite explicitly in this, and he sides with Marcus Garvey, despite Garvey, of course, being not an integrationist, but a separationist. I won't call him a segregationist, but also extolling um, the building of like a parallel black society, culture and economy and nation, uh, including capital formation. Right. He sides with Garvey because, as you said, he understands this looking at it from the 1980s, having lived through the 60s and 70s as a stage in the development of the formation of the uh, oppressed nation coming into its own. Right. But going from a class or a caste, I guess you would call it a caste uh, in itself into like a caste for itself. Mm -hmm. But before we get there, let's talk about another movie um, that goes with the the first part of Chapter Nine of Settlers, uh, Killers of the Flower Moon. Yeah, because uh, Chapter Nine begins with, um, so this is about, it's called neo colonial pacification in the United States, and it, it begins with how Native Americans, um, after being uh, virtually ethnically cleansed everywhere, run into to small reservations. Once there was uh, some kind of settlement on these reservations, there became the imposition of a uh, tribal of tribal governments led by the federal government um, that uh, in some ways improved the economic conditions of Native Americans. But uh, Sakai argues that the point of this was to create a Native American bourgeoisie who could sell the resources of of the land of these reser- reservations, whether it be mining or timber or or, uh, or labor, um, to the United States government, whereas previously Native Americans were still living somewhat traditional or, or communal lifestyle. I don't know if that's true, um, but uh, yeah. So let's talk about that along with Killers of the Flower Moon. Um, yeah, let's do it. I think that the, we were very fortunate that we both got a chance to see the new Scorsese movie right as we're getting into chapter nine of this book. You know, it was very propitious because all of a sudden now uh, we have Sakai dealing with the same history, as you said. Yeah, we're reading Killers. settlers and we're also living settlers. We're living right settlers and we're encountering settlerism through our mass culture, right? That uh, Scorsese apparently has been obsessed with this story and has wanted to uh, do a movie about it forever. And this might actually be his last movie. The man's in his 80s now. And I think this, he might be done after this. I don't believe that, but that's what some people say. Flower, uh, Killers of the Flower Moon I saw about a week and a week and a half ago maybe, like when it first came out. thought it was really, really great. I thought it was long, but I thought that it had to be because it really brings you into a time and a place and a world and a conflict that um, re- you really have to be immersed in and he immerses you in this world. I think that um, you walk away from Killers of the Flower Moon, uh, of course, with like a deep sympathy 
for uh, these native peoples and what they went through. But I think largely, and I, we can't expect Scorsese to be like a Sakai or like a Engels or a Marx in this, but you do get a really good and sustained social critique of not just America of the 1920s in Oklahoma, but I think like a more thoroughgoing critique of Americanism because Scorsese um, doesn't neglect to bring up like the Tulsa race riots, right? Which destroy the black middle class in Oklahoma contemporaneous to this uh, or other various different happenings within what was a counter-revolutionary decade in the 1920s, not just of course in Europe, but very much so in the United States across the board. So, um, I guess maybe we can we can start off by what I think worked really well with Killers of the Flower Moon, and even sort of illustrates some of Sakai's points, which is it, it begins with this Leo uh, DiCaprio character um, returning from World War One, looking for his place in the world, and, and being one of perhaps the most absolute dog-brained, dipshitted idiotic characters i think in the history of cinema just complete vacant uh opportunistic and self-deluding piece of shit <laughs> well uh yeah and i think that is a big triumph of the movie because i recently saw wolf of wall street again for for the first time since i saw it in theaters and that movie is a uh, as fun as it is and as good as it is at times it's a it's a failure because um it was meant to uh, at one point, at one part, show the excesses of Wall Street and the, uh, you know, the, the, the evil of that greed and that fun and that bro, uh, you know, culture of like, let's throw a little person at a target, let's uh, yeah. treat women however we want, let's fuck over everybody in our lives, abuse our spouses and stuff. Uh, our taxes. The point of that movie is to show that that's bad but of course the legacy of that movie is a lot of people wanted to become stockbrokers and be like totally. leo just like uh what uh what's the famous vietnam movie that's meant to be an anti-war movie but was just huge for military recruitment the one with the uh, private oh, full pile. metal jacket yeah, or? full metal jacket was just beloved uh by people in the army it became a, a recruitment campaign essentially because right. people wanted to get that kind of abuse and violence and uh you know people want to go to boot camp and get beat up and get abused or beat someone else up um right. so those those movies are failures on their own terms as an anti-war movie as an anti-wall street movie this movie succeeds in showing the uh absolute um brutality of of settler colonialism of white supremacy um, not only for the all of the the women who were murdered in the story, uh, and men, uh, the native people who were uh, dispossessed, but also for Leo himself because he had a chance to have a good, loving marriage and family, mm -hmm. and he knew, you know, you could tell deep down he knows that he could have made the right choice. I guess we we shouldn't go too far into the spoilers. Nah. Maybe we people could. have probably seen it already. Yeah, if you haven't, spoilers it. ahead. Um, but uh, let's just say, metaphorically, he drinks some of the poison of white supremacy. Uh, I think trying to slow himself down, trying to stop himself in his tracks, because he had no willpower to really fight against it, to really refuse the yeah. orders of 
his uncle, who's a Mason, uh, who's uh, uh, at least adjacent to the Ku Klux Klan, but most importantly, was uh, a emerging capitalist in this exactly. um, uh, Osage nation and wanted to take Osage capital for himself. And even even though uh, Leo, I totally forget his name, <laughs> the, the name yeah. of the character. Uh, Bert, Bert something. I've yeah, uh, e- even Ebert. though he knew he was just a expendable foot soldier in this campaign, uh, he went along with it until the end. He could not stop lying. He could not stop um, be, and being And he couldn't a, stop lying to himself because up until the very end, he lives with this contradiction, which is that really the only thing and the only person in his life that gives his life true meaning is his partner, uh, you know, who is a native woman who he loves and he takes care of through her worst times. But at the same time, he's actively involved in having her family killed and poisoning her, which he tries to deny that, that he actually is doing that. But you can tell by the end, he starts to realize it. Uh, You know, one thing that I thought this movie was really powerful in was showing the absolute banality of this process of, if we want to call it primitive accumulation, certainly a process of dispossession, um, you know, using not just murder, but also, of course, legal means. It shows the way in which the banality, the way that the banality of this evil works out across somebody's life and around in a, a community, as you see this grandfatherly like figure of his uncle who is a pillar of the community. He's a local burger. He's like the equivalent of today, like the, the big muckety muck in town who, um, you know, presumes or tries to convince everybody that he's looking out for everyone's interest, but very quietly behind the scenes doing some of the worst crimes and atrocities you could ever imagine. And the way in which all of it's not all of, but it seems large parts of the, white community in this instance are in on the game and how they justify it to themselves and how blank their moral vision is, how empty they are uh, and how uh, the acquisitiveness um, and the dispossession uh, really go to, to, to fulfill like a larger historical mission, which is the elimination of this aberration, which is a non-white people with white servants. Mm-hmm. Yep. You know, which is a very striking thing you see in the very beginning of the film. And even for people like you and I who are like critical, and I'm sure a lot of the listeners here too are like primed to to be like open and broad-minded about stuff. The Scorsese shocks you immediately by showing like cowed white manservants of native peoples who are local capitalists and are like ordering them around in this complete inversion of the racial structure of the United States and showing that as like a deep affront to the people of that time, them understanding the place of the, their place in the world and the, and the hierarchies of the world. Very effective. And, and that banality that you mentioned, it, it reminds me of a, a couple of films I saw recently that did this very well. One is Oppenheimer, yes. um, where throughout the movie you see him um, trying to do the right thing, uh, sort of, but just getting rid of his conflicts, you know, going full steam towards basically what he's being told to do by the military, and he rationalizes it to some extent, but he is unable to stop what he's doing, despite all the signs around him that he should stop. And The Shining, um, which mm. is another 
another film um, that is a, uh, about indigenous genocide and white supremacy where uh, uh, Jack, the, the caretaker of this hotel, is instructed by the ghosts of the previous caretakers of the hotel that um, if, if women and children and black people are getting in your way, uh, you have to kill them. Mm-hmm. You have to crush them. That's how it was when we founded the hotel, by dispossessing the native people of this sacred land. Um, and that's how it is today. And <laughs> he ends up having to murder his family, uh, right. which is a very similar storyline. And uh, but, but also similar because... Um, in these movies, these people are powerless to say no, powerless to do anything different. Yeah, this is not this not powerless, this, but like in their own mind, there's no power in their own minds. Yeah, they're like they're in this groove, in this rut, and they're being propelled forward by like larger social forces and more powerful actors into doing things that they themselves wouldn't imagine. Because of course, the Leonardo DiCaprio character, when he first shows up on the train, is getting all these different job offers in this boom town. Like, do you want to be a roustabout? Do you want to be a blah blah blah? And he ends up becoming a chauffeur driver, uh, in uh, in deference to what his um, his uncle wanted. But before we move on with that, I think you you put your finger on something really interesting, and maybe a larger topic for another time, or at least something we can bracket out. But like. The two of the biggest movies this year have been about exactly what we're saying, which are like these conflicted actors who are dealing with like grand social and political forces and mass violence uh, in such a way that it's kind of carrying them through history, like carrying them through time where their will is sort of subordinated to these great forces. And they ultimately end up in deep conflict with themselves and with those around them and end up really being destroyed by it. Says something interesting in the year 2023 that these are the sorts of films that are being created, that all these great, you know, big budgets are going into, that these are being written and accepted and produced and made. And they're, uh, you know, getting a lot of resonance uh, among people. So maybe they're they're close to the the sort of general tenor of how people feel right now, or at least how sensitive artistic type people feel about our current state in the world. Of course, they're using Oppenheimer used uh, the 1930s and 1940s, and this uses the 1920s and 1930s. But this is clearly resonating uh, with people today, which is interesting. And the the fact that these narratives are not more, not overly moralistic, like, you know, the, the, the viewer knows that what the characters are doing is wrong and maybe the characters come to that realization at the end, but it doesn't matter because um, they are being driven by material forces, and the material forces are not purely just, well, I want more money for myself, but I'm I'm doing what my people do, and yeah. uh, that's what Settlers is about. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, it is. That's right, yeah. Uh, Sakai allows himself some uh, moral extravagance, but... Considering what he's writing about, I think being moralistic about a lot of this stuff is completely appropriate and adequate. Um, do we have more to say about uh, the movie, or do you want to start getting into the into get in, chapter nine? Get into the book. Yeah. So, we're as you said before, we're talking about um, essentially Sakai is giving us the history of what the New Deal meant for Native peoples in the country and what liberal New Deal reformism 
meant for their uh, sovereignty and their autonomy and ultimately the sort of economic base out of which they would try to live through the rest of the 20th century. Because as you said, uh, bourgeois private property and legalism is, is foisted upon these communities, many of, of these nations, let's say, many of them who rejected it, but were ultimately was forced upon them. Importantly, private property is foisted upon them only so that it can be used, as you said, to open up a free market for the mineral rights uh, on the lands that they were allegedly, that were secured for them by their treaties with the, the federal government. And so what Sakai is arguing in this is that the fig leaf of democracy, the fig leaf of self-determination through very specifically the same sort of legal, uh, liberal democratic uh, institutions and norms that the rest of America has. That fig leaf right there was actually the way in which the New Deal was used to expropriate, dispossess, but importantly, blunt the revolutionary edge of um, what was left of you know revolutionary Native American resistance, or just empire. or just indigenous autonomy in the sense that they had their own farms and they were able to hunt and fish, and um, through the through various means of enclosure, they became consumers of more centralized American agriculture and commodity production. Um, but uh, the, a, a really good quote here from, uh, he's, he's talking about the 1930s and the emergence of this Southern Tem Tenants Farm Union, the STFU. Mm. <laughs> yeah, I love that STFU. Yeah. I did a LOL when I saw that on there. So the, the STFU was... Uh, an integrated, but I think largely black union of, uh, well, is it, was it largely black? It was sharecroppers and, and poor whites. It and was both. It was an, in, it was integrated black and white. Um, and so, uh, there's this chat, there's this quote where at one point the ST STFU in the, in the mid thirties goes to the Choctaw Indian, uh, uh, farm workers and, tells them to get organized and join the STFU. And the Choctaw leader uh, responds by saying, Indian already organized. When white man and black man get ready to take back the land, we join them. Fucking um, based. <laughs> and for Sakai, of course, that's perfect because, yeah. you know, the, they're, you know we're, no, we're not joining the left. We're not joining the labor movements. Uh, when, when you're ready to go, we'll be there. But uh, yeah. we're, we're not going to fall for this. Well, it's... I was thinking a lot about this in earlier chapters of Sakai when he talked about when he referenced the American Indian movement and talked about the, you know, quote unquote, pacification of the West and the native peoples. You know, there's settler colonialism. I think that we struggle maybe sometimes to give it one definition. Right. There's like a sort of general sort of like, um, I don't know. Um, like common sense view of settler colonialism. It's when settlers go there and colonize things. And then there's maybe like a deeper one where we're, that Sakai is trying to work with, like the ramifications of an entire institutional and state apparatus in which like settlerism is the driving principle and also used in such a way to um, create, to finesse a certain class structure and uh, oppress a certain... Um, uh, oppressed nation within it, right? But like, what's interesting and maybe what's different between what's happening in Palestine or what has been happening in Palestine since the 1930s and 1940s, certainly 
over the last few decades or so. And what's hap- what happened with the native peoples of this country is that the settler colonialism of the United States and manifest destiny and going out west and all that, uh, you had the confrontation of two massively, extremely different modes of production, right? You have, uh, you know, what Engels and others would call uh, primitive communism. You certainly didn't have anything like private property. You didn't have borders. You didn't have governance as we understand it today. Um, interacting with, in a very bloody fashion, um, and vice versa, with a sort of developing world capitalist system, which leads to, I think, the level of genocide that we saw, uh, because you have this such an epic clash of two different modes of production, let's call them, in a very abstract sense, and peoples in a more concrete sense. When you get to something like Israel-Palestine, you know, the Palestine mandate of the British already had something that passed for at least petty commodity production by the time the early to mid 20th century comes around. And so therefore the clash is serious, but it's not quite as bloody because there is a means to resistance that's based upon some of the principles already extant on there as an outside force comes in and and colonizes. Whereas the native peoples, of course, of this country, the first peoples, are, it's such a different mode of organizing society and social property that its bloodiness is sort of inscribed in the ways that that these differences uh, existed on the land, you know? And um, moving on from the uh, Native American part of that argument, uh, he describes the Great Migration and the... Um, I know it, it, it's an art. It's a, it's a. It gets a little bit more difficult when he's talking about African Americans in the South because these are largely sharecroppers. But he sort of describes them as as peasants and like the as if like their correct course for them would have been to stay in the South and reclaim those lands and farm them communally and like uh, maintain the African nation of the Black Belt instead of being dispersed. He he argues that the New Deal dispersed them by buying up. Uh, plots of land in uh, under the pretense of um, managing commodity prices, prices. so yeah. they they would buy farms and make sure they weren't used it, it, so that prices could stabilize. The result of this is that black farmers in the South, you know, no matter what their previous condition was, became much more poor and were forced to leave for industrial jobs in the North. And he sees this as a uh, a sort of dispersal of the African nation um, that is a tactic of colonialism to not only dispossess people, uh, peasants, um, or people like peasants from their means of subsistence, but also to d- disperse them as a political force. Yeah, and he goes one step further and he analogizes what we saw then to counterinsurgency. Right. So counterinsurgency, as it was first developed in uh, the Philippines, or you could say uh, the Boer War as well, right around the same time, the 1890s, uh, turn of the 20th century. Um, he's, and then, of course, in Vietnam as well, which Sakai you know, lives through. This, these counterinsurgency programs are about, as you said, the dispersal and the breaking up of um, communities, um, basically concentrating people in different areas, which he analogizes to uh, what, what he calls the refugees from the nation who go up north uh, in the like in the industrializing era, um, 
and then also, of course, installing a petty bourgeois leadership, uh, as he describes the NAACP, and later, as we'll see, famous uh, socialist unionist A. Philip Randolph being an example for him. Um, and then also, what was the third thing? What was the secret third thing? Uh, let's see. I think looking at it in terms of uh, counterinsurgency is a very, very interesting analogy. Are you talking about the neo-colonial leadership? Yeah, neo-colonial leadership, yeah. Um, well, so, yeah, so part of this argument is that um, Booker T. Washington was sort of appointed by um, the federal government as the, like, you know, the representative of African Americans. And, of course, he's got this very capitalistic mindset based on bootstraps ideology more or less uh which runs counter to du bois who's more of a socialist but uh, uh so this was the initial form of um you know uh elevating the the uh a representative of these oppressed people um that would most uh conform them to the settler projects um but we see a big change in that uh, moving from Washington to a Philip Randolph, who was a trade unionist. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, I, I don't know a lot about Philip Randolph, but his rhetoric at least was pretty radical. Um, when when Sakai quotes him, he sounds like a Leninist at times. <laughs> like he supports. Yeah, we're against a monopoly capitalist, uh, monopoly capitalist democracy, and we're against uh, fascism, colonial, like imperialist fascism. Um, but it, you know his his version of socialism is is about integration, and Sakai sees integration as genocide. He sees the civil rights movement as genocide, um, or, or as, as uh, containment. He yeah. sees it as containment of the revolutionary struggle of the oppressed nation. Uh, and so, yeah, I think for a second maybe we should get in, into a bit about a Philip Randolph and uh, Sakai. Sakai uh, frames this neocolonial leadership with a quote from Amakar Cabral, who was an independence fighter in, in Guinea-Bissau uh, against the Portuguese government. The quote is, Imperialism is quite prepared to change both its men and its tactics in order to perpetuate itself. It will kill its own puppets when they no longer serve its purposes. If need be, it will even create a kind of socialism, which people may start to call neo-socialism. So, yeah, I think... Sakai here is saying that any socialist who's engaging with the labor movement, with the, the settler state of the United States, is a, is a, a neo-socialist and is basically a new kind of puppet. Sakai is saying that uh, the DSA killed Rosa Luxemburg. <laughs> <laughs> Sakai is, is saying uh, that, um, yeah, the, you know, uh, the biggest, I think, advocate of A. Philip Randolph and his strategy like the unionist, socialist, social democratic, um, integrationist uh, strategy, of course, is uh, Adolf Reed, right? Whose actual, his family comes out of that tradition, right? And his father does anyways. Um, this is where I think I, uh, I step back and I think that we, we need to be like respectful of the, the historical dynamic at this point in time and understand like the deep um, fractures that exist in this historical moment 
that now when we get to the early 20th century is actually happening on the terms that Sakai has talked about these things happening for like two, three hundred years before this. Like now we're getting into a history where his thesis starts to become recognizable. So whereas in the past, maybe I was pretty quick to like jump in and be like counterpoint, you know, now I think Sakai, as the history's kind of caught up with his argument, is dealing with very real contradictory historical dynamics within black politics in the United States. And I think that the Garveyism thing is really interesting, right? Because people who don't know, people who haven't read the book, you know, Marcus Garvey famously is a Jamaican, uh, Jamaican black man who um, organizes in America, um, famously ends up in prison for fraud after his uh, Black Star shipping line uh, fails after, it turns out to be a sort of Ponzi scheme. But the Garveyite vision was a fascinating one. And it works in a way for Sakai because it nods to a sort of larger black nationalism, but it's also an uh, internationalism as well. It's concerned with like anti-colonialism and anti-imperialism broadly across the diaspora in the new world. And its vision is actually to connect that diaspora back to the homeland, right? And kind of like Liberia, or you could say maybe like Israel or something, right? Trying to bring the diaspora back to the homeland by creating, using civil society, importantly, right? creating parallel structures, parallel economies, parallel culture, parallel educational institutions, and importantly, parallel capital formation, like Booker T. Washington would have called, was calling for, right? In order to make liberation a national slash international reality, facts on the ground. And it's A. Philip Randolph and his integrationism, right? And his reformism, and his socialism or neo-socialism, social democracy, let's call it, right? That's the perfect counterpoint to this for Sakai because Sakai smears A. Philip Randolph um, and counterposes him to Garvey, even though, of course, Garvey is, um, is arguing for uh, basically a bourgeois nationalism, an international bourgeois nationalism, whereas A. Philip Randolph is a union leader fighting for the integration of the black working class. But I think that what the way that Sakai squares that circles, you know, fighting for the for the black capitalist is that he sees again Garveyism as a stage in the development of what would later come to be black power of the 1950s and 60s. And uh so just to to give a little bit more context about um Garvey's organization, this is the Universal Negro Improvement Association um and this was a it had hundreds or thousands of chapters around the world um probably hundreds of thousands of active members but uh more importantly just millions of of black people were uh very very strongly identified with this movement and still to this day do um for uh nation of islam comes out of that and all of the sects that come out of nation of islam um, and uh, Rastafarianism comes out of it, and uh, a really uh, incredible. De- and, and and so he Sakai uh, Sakai is like sort of trying to problematize these narratives that like there was this nationalist resurgence around Garvey, but then it it dies, it gets repressed. You know, uh, he goes to he goes to prison. The movement's broken up, and it, it gets repressed around the world. Um, his the newspaper's suppressed in every country. Uh, and the the he he's responding to narratives that say like well the nationalism uh, 
came and left. But Mm. then he looks to the 1930s when um, Italy invades Ethiopia. Yeah, yeah. And Ethiopia was the, the, the central locus point of the Garvey movement. Garvey, so Garvey's idea was that black people everywhere, um, you know, in the United States, they're such a small minority. They can't, uh, you know, they can't have autonomy just there. There has to be this international movement that corresponds to Africa and a pan-African vision of Africa. And he uses Africa and Ethiopia interchangeably because as a Christian, Ethiopia was the most, uh, or the oldest Christian nation and um, the, the nation that had resisted colonialism the longest and the strongest mm-hmm. in Africa, uh, winning a war against Italy in 1896 and re- retaining its independence and um, re- remaining a, an empire uh, under Emperor Haile Selassie I uh, in, uh, until and, and, and after um, fascist Italy uh, pushes its borders and invades. And so when, when it invades, there is this... Uh, initially, the League of Nations ignores it. The United States ignores mm. it. Um, there's l- very little said on that level. Um, but there's a mass movement in the United States of... I, I don't really know the, the demographic makeup, but it appears to be largely African-American and maybe Italian anti-fascists and other anti-fascists mm. uh, launch a hands-off Ethiopia campaign that... Uh, you know, it definitely reminds me a little bit about what we're seeing now with the massive pro-Palestinian demonstrations that are 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 oriented towards the U.S. government and the United Nations and governments around the world saying, you want to ignore this? You want to sacrifice the Palestinian people because you want to retain some balance of power in the Middle East? But we're, we're not going to ignore it because we identify with these people, uh, both Arab Americans and uh, people from the Palestinian diaspora and Arabic people around the world, but also Jewish people, also Jewish anti-fascists, essentially anti-Zionists. Yeah, yeah. I, I, you have to put a very strong counterpoint on it because if we were to make an analogy be- between those two things today, it would all culminate as Sakai honestly celebrates it culminating in the 1930s with essential uh, pogroms against Jewish-owned businesses. Because this is the dark side of the nation and nationalism. If you look in this chapter, and I'm not making this up, right, towards the end of it, what is the fruits of this anti-Italian um, imperialism campaign is that there are riots in Jersey City and in Harlem um, against Italian shop owners, and a bunch of their uh, businesses are looted and burned because they were Italian. Uh, and there were many, many assaults and, and mass violence. This is the so way Sakai like, portrays it. I haven't looked into it to see if that's what it was. Well, uh, let me find. It's important because I made such a claim there. It's important that I uh, look up the actual text here. One second. The sharecropper. What page was the um, the Italian stuff? Um, I'm, I'm looking at the site now. Here, it's, um, I can read it. Yeah. The conflict was fought out in miniature on the streets of Jersey City, Brooklyn, and Harlem between Africans and pro-fascist Italian immigrants. The night of August 11th, I believe that's 1935, over a 1,000 Africans and Italians fought with baseball bats and rocks 
on the streets of Jersey City on October 4th, the day after the invasion began. Thousands of Africans attacked Italian shops in Harlem and Brooklyn. On the streets, the masses of ordinary Africans viewed their fight and the fight in Ethiopia as very <laughs> close. Well, there you oh, go. And, oh, so more in the next paragraph. Yeah. Uh, in 1936, a late-night street corner rally of the African Patriotic League called to protest Italian mass executions of Ethiopian patriots rapidly turned into an attack on the police. Smashing Italian store windows, the crowd of 400 Africans marched down Lenox Avenue in Harlem looking for particular policemen who made a point of arresting nationalists. In the mass fighting with police that followed, the New York police started shooting after the determined crowd, charging them to successfully free one of their members who had been arrested. Ethiopia was close to home. So collective punishment. Collective punishment against Italian-American shop owners. I mean, you could argue maybe they found out they were able to peer into these Italian-American shop owners' brains and identify them as Mussolini supporters, or maybe... Uh, he doesn't say it, but maybe you could be generous and say, well, maybe they only attacked the Italian shops. They went inside first to see if he had Mussolini <laughs> pictures in there before they smashed it up. Maybe they did maybe. their due diligence. Maybe. But that's being very generous to the situation. My point is, and I think everybody, you and everybody else, can see where I'm going with this, right? If you were going to analogize the protests that we're seeing now pro-Palestinian against the Israeli Defense Forces onslaught, <laughs> Uh, in, in Gaza with what happened back then, it would culminate in the war being close to home with pro-Palestinian protesters smashing up Jewish shops and then fighting the police. You know, like we, we, this, is, this is always where, this is always, always where I remember the Rudolph Rocker quote, which is that behind every Mazzini lies a Mussolini, right? Whenever you're talking about the romantic Republican nationalism of oppressed peoples rising up and creating this cohesive, um, ethnically cohesive, linguistically co cohesive, imaginary community bounded within the nation state with all these institutions of sovereignty and self-determination, there's always an outside within that inside, right? And if it's Italy, it's going to be the South. Um, if it's um, if it's in um, Camden, New Jersey, or it's in Brooklyn or Harlem, right? You're, it's going to elicit itself in pogroms or at least some sort of discrimination of a minority. And so Sakai, for me anyways, undermines his argument with extolling this fight against the war, which is also at home, which is against, sure, petty bourgeoisie Italian shop owners, but like, is this the example that is this what nationalism comes to? Because the other example that he uses when he's talking about nationalism uh, within the black belt uh, in the 1920s and 1930s is uh, the institution of self-governance and also for the whites remaining uh, sort of quota system where, where whites, the white sharecroppers who remained in the South when it was the new African Republic could get like some percentage of mm -hmm. governance or whatever. So now we're into like affirmative action for, for white people on the South or a quota system or whatever. These are the sort of sticky things now where when I, when I see the nation and then the, the, the glorious romantic conception of the nation uh, behind that lurks, like behind that mask lies something very dark and something that we see right now, unfortunately, in Palestine, in Gaza and across the world, wherever sort of ethnic lines cross within the borders of the nation state and the oppressed peoples 
become the oppressor peoples. And of, and of course, we get this from Fanon as well. Fanon understood this dialectic and was critical of uh, uh, colonial uh, uh, the decolonialism for this reason. Although, of course, he supported it. He supports it, but then recognizes its limits. Um, and but Sakai also does as well. And he he mentions I can't qu- find the quote right now, but he mentions that this nationalism had mass popular support. Um, but it was very limited in terms of its, uh, its, its revolutionary capacity because it, you know, and he doesn't go too deep into what he means by this, but I, of course, as a Maoist, what he means is that they, it needs to be led by a communist party. And so being led by Garvey, you know, it, it, it helped, uh, spark this mass political organizing, but since Garvey was not a communist, um, he, he was not able to cohere it into a revolutionary force and, um, Sakai doesn't say like, well, this is the reason that there was a, atrocities against Italian people. He doesn't frame things that way, but I think that's somewhat implied. Uh, but let's go, let's go back to, to Randolph. Um, I wanted to find yeah. a more rosy view of Randolph and I found one, mm. you'll never believe it, but in Jacobin. Hey, um, well, I'm not surprised by that at all. And so I'll, I'll read some of this. Um, yeah. and I'll post the link in the show notes. Randolph saw Garvey as a charlatan, thinking his program was unrealistic and lacked class content. Randolph started a Garvey Must Go campaign when it was revealed Garvey had a secret meeting with the Ku Klux Klan and published Mm. bitter polemics against black nationalism in The Messenger. The Messenger was Randolph's uh, newspaper. Things escalated to the point where Randolph received a severed human hand in the mail. The Mm. The Garveyites went hard. They went hard. <laughs> they killed a, a witness uh, against them in the trial against Garvey. Um, yeah. And I'm sure they did a lot of other things. Um, reflecting on this years later, Randolph said, what you needed to follow Garvey was a leap of imagination. But socialism and trade unionism called for rigorous social struggle, hard work, and programs. And few people wanted to think about that. Against the emotional power of Garveyism, what I was preaching didn't stand a chance. So even Randolph understood what Sakai is saying is that th- this nationalism is a much stronger force than what I'm pushing for. Yeah. Yeah. It's the original identity politics and it's an identity politics. That's so powerful that we don't even recognize it as identity politics anymore, but it is, you know, something that arises in the 19th century with the rise of, you know, bourgeois civilization with the material community of capital. Um, and so, Always, 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 I try to historicize this. And I'm not sure that Nasai, that I almost said Nasai, sorry, Nasai, um, Jay Sakai adequately historicizes the nation state enough. I've already dinged him on his slippage where he's like, he's talking about the proletarian nation, but also pointing out that like elements of the black petty bourgeoisie were like counter revolutionary and they were kowtowing to settlerism or whatever. And like, what is the nation but a cross-class compromise, right? Based on linguistic, cultural, or ethnic lines, uh, ultimately having at its base some manner of, if if not chauvinism, then some sort of supremacism. So the argument by him as a Marxist-Leninist and as a Maoist, of course, is that it's necessary to go through this phase of national liberation, uh, of nation building, essentially, in order to get to for that bourgeois democratic revolution to then turn into the socialist one well we of course problematize that too because we've seen the effects of this i mean the ukrainian russian war is one of the effects of this um there's back to can we go back to the stfu or do you have other things to say 
Yeah, well, we, I guess we can get back to Hey folks, Sean KB here. Uh, just a reminder that our show relies on your support. So if you enjoy what we do and you want to hear more excellent bonus content, you can become a patron at patreon.com slash theantifada. It's cheap, there's a ton of content, and it would mean everything to us. So thank you, and we'll see you behind the paywall. <laughs> 